better than that unless maybe 32, and that's two weeks. So uh, um, come back for that one as well. But today, so much to feast on um, in one verse. Could you, Grant, maybe start? Could we read all seven of these guys again, starting from 26 and 32? Because, I, and certainly there's a connection all the way through here, but um, 28 to 32, I think, when, hey, come on in, good to see you guys. 28 to 32, um, 26 to 32, I think these seven verses and the connection and the logic and uh, and, and we're camping on those quite a quite a while, really, probably four weeks here. So um, if we could start at 26 and go all the way to 32, that'd be great. And if you'd pray for us. Okay. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day that we can gather publicly uh, with fellow believers and worship you and study your word. Father, I pray that this discussion of Romans 8.28 would be fruitful and blessed by your hand, Father, and would change how we interact with our everyday circumstances um, and I pray this in Jesus name Amen Amen. Can I, Scott I can't wait to get to the white sheets here but I really, is it alright to start by quoting Mark McAndrew, is that usually safe? I remember Mark saying this probably a decade ago that he had two, no this probably two decades ago, that he had two things that are a hard time when it comes to this verse. One is first like, could this really be true? Because it sounds like too good to be true, right? Every event in the life of every believer all day long continually is truly working together for good. That just seems, ah, it just seems a little too good to be true. The great news is it is true. Why do we believe this promise? Because it's true. That's the great thing. And that's the second battle he said. The first battle we have is just to become convinced that it's true. And the second battle is just to believe it in everyday life, right? Because, again, it doesn't seem like it. And, uh, and I think I'm with him every day in, in that battle. And there is not a bigger hypocrite out of all of us and maybe in North America than me because, boy, have I blown it this week in not really applying this incredible truth and so boy lord willing i want this like here 45 minutes to impact all of our thinking and how we go about uh handling the circumstances scott what make the connection from 26 to 27 or whatever you have on the white sheets if there's not a connection I want to hear it. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, first off, this is this is this guy's life verse, so all of us felt a little funny even being up here with Jerry. I mean, Jerry can handle this whole time. He doesn't want me to say this. It's not on the white sheet. But he, this is his life verse, so hopefully he'll get to talk a lot about this verse today. I mean, when you broke your neck, you, you said you clung to this verse. It became your best friend. So hopefully we'll get some of that. We'll try to push some questions his way. But in terms of the connection, I think 
uh, in terms of last time, we, we saw how we did, when situations arise where we don't know what to pray for. Grant, you mentioned Haley after the, the birth of your daughter. Haley, all this blood, you didn't know what's going to happen. You couldn't even pray right. So there's so many situations where we simply don't know what to pray for. But then you come to Romans 8, 28. It's like, we know. It starts out with, we know. And we know. So even in situations where we don't know what to pray for, we know there's this one overarching truth that is true every single situation. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I think there's even the connection where it's like there's a situation where we don't know this one we do know. Even when we don't know what to pray for, we know overarching that all things are going to work together for good. Uh, one, one guy just said, Romans 8.28 is surely one of the best-known texts in the Bible. On it, believers of every age and place have stayed their minds. It has been likened to a pillow on which to rest our weary mm-hmm. heads. Another guy just said, if you, and this, this I think is the application, which maybe we'll come back to at the end. I'll give application right now. Is It would be, if we live inside this massive promise, your life is more solid and stable than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over when you're inside the walls of Romans 8, 28. Like everything else, if you're outside of this promise, you're going to get blown down. The slightest little trial is going to blow you down. But if you're inside of this promise, it's the ballast in the boat. I mean, it will keep you stable and steadfast because you know everything. Like all things, one guy just said, all things really means all things. From the, from the biggest things, smallest things, even includes suffering. Every single thing. God's using it uh, for our good. And I think if, if we, we need to soak on it, treasure it, love it, cling to it, like you said, become our best friend, our lives will be so stable, and we will be joyful, even in the midst of trials, because this promise is so massive. And it's right. true. And it's true, yeah. And we know it. We like, know those it. three words. There's, one of the commentators says, there's some things that we don't know. Right? Go back a couple verses. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what's best. There's all of those things we don't know. He said in 22, there's something else we know. Uh, sneak back, and I, I, I kind of like this. This was new for me. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Romans 8 is full of some things we know and we don't know. And so we don't know how to pray. We do know that all things are going to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That we know, we know for sure. Once again, since we know it, don't you think we ought to just enjoy it? Right? That's, I know that's way simplistic. Probably second grade thinking right there. But uh, that's how childlike faith works, right? Little guys, they operate like that. Grant, could you say, Carol, talk about Caroline when she's uh, getting ready to go outside? Like, what does she know <laughs> is going to happen and what happens? Uh, she knows it's going to be good. When we walk towards the door, uh, I'm holding her facing out, and she starts, like, doing her arms and kicking her legs, like, really strong. Yeah. And don't you think maybe we ought to be a little more like that every day? Arms swinging and leg kicking, knowing that. Oh, this is going to be good today. Like, the circumstances might be horrific, but that makes not one bit of difference. Our circumstances have 0% impact on what's really good because we are guaranteed to know that what's good is really going to happen. Josh? Yeah, I want to just echo what Scott said. I mean, this I'm excited to hear you talk about this, Jerry, and even – preparing this week, I feel like I can give a few introductory thoughts and then I may just slip off to the to the audience to hear from you on this. But um, this one verse is is so packed. I, th- I think one one guy I was listening to made an analogy sort of similar to this, but it's like opening up the Narnian wardrobe when you, you, you kind of life can be dark and damp sometimes and then you open up and see the promise that's here in eight twenty eight. And uh, it's pretty powerful. But I thought 
just by way of introduction, these four boundaries that Jim Boyce gave were really helpful um, just to um, begin to frame this verse and think it through. But uh, his first point was that this is for Christians only, and we know that those who love God, so this promise is reserved for, for believers, and the good is defined ultimately by God and not by us. And he elaborates in verse 29 on that. Um, to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good, which I'm sure that we'll talk more about shortly. Uh, thirdly, um, the things, Jim Boy said, the things God uses for good are not necessarily good in themselves. We're not calling evil good per se, but God uses and works them for our good. And you can see this um, demonstrated chiefly in the cross. And then fourthly, we may not feel it or see it, but we can know it, that God is working. We can um, know it in our minds. We can bank on it. We can trust it. And I, I thought Derek Thomas um, made a great point. He said, there are a thousand substitutes for the truth of Romans eight twenty-eight, And we may look to maybe a, a nice retirement plan or... Um, bank accounts, he said anti-ballistic weaponry, or the state of our, our state-of-the-art home defense systems, f- filling whatever earthly thing we look to for trust and security, it is no substitute, no comparison to the promise in 828 and the God who stands behind that promise and um, all of the promises of Scripture. We can be sure our entire life, Thomas said, uh, that we're under God's watchful care and provision. <clears throat> yeah. No, that's great. Anything um, to add to that? I think that's so good. Uh, MacArthur, I think, titled his sermons. He has several sermons in this area of text, but many of them were titled The Believer's Invincibility, uh, yeah. that everything is ultimately working for our good. And just want to echo what Josh was saying, that um, all things are not good that are working together, but all things are being worked together for our good. So there are bad things that happen, evil things that happen, but ultimately the believer is finally invincible, as MacArthur would say, because everything's working for us. Yeah. And that good would be, I think, eschatological or in time. That's probably a good differentiation there, isn't it? Because yeah. that, yeah, that if we and we could misrepresent what the verse is saying easily if we would say everything's good. Certainly sin is not good. I really believe that I taught this wrongly for, wow, a long time in saying Romans 8 is all things work together for good except for sin. And that's interesting because in one way that would make sense, except I don't think that's true. God even orchestrates the sinful things and what would be the best Example of that maybe is going back to Joseph, right? Where he says to his brothers, what you guys meant for evil, and he knew that what they did was really evil, right? He was not saying that what they did was right in any way. It wasn't right in any way. It was sinful through and through. What you guys meant for evil, what? God meant for good. So God orchestrated even those sinful events from his brother, and I'm certain that some of uh, his own sin, uh, you know, would have been mixed in there along the way, whether he had a little pride in when he was talking about his dreams, or, you know, we, we're all, it's other people's sin and our own sin, but isn't it great to know today that God is not hindered by our sin? No plan of God's will be thwarted. No plan of God's will be thwarted, Job 42. 
right? So it's not that he got hindered to say, whew, this was going to be a pretty good plan, except now sin's involved, and now we're handcuffed, right? That's not ever going to be the, be the case. Now, that doesn't ever give us an excuse to sin, obviously. That would be the whole wrong way is to say, well, Romans 8.28 is going to work either way, so, uh, so I'm going to go out and do some things that, uh, you know, don't go jump off the cliff and expect that, uh, you know, gravity is not going to work. That's not at all what this, what, what this verse is saying, for sure. I think we have to dissect the verse. When you have something that's this good and this meaty, let's kind of go just word by word here. We talked about and we know, okay? We know this. And I guess the challenge for us, for me, for all of us, I think, today, is to say, do you really know this? And if you don't know it, like I'm feeling like today, for sure, that I don't know it and hold on to it like I ought to, then just continue to meditate on it. Continue to ask the Lord to convince you of this great promise. And continue to ask him to help you apply it to each life, to each part of your life, I mean. So that in anything that you're worried about, list the top five things that you're worried about and put this verse up against it, right? Think of the top five things that you're fearful about or the top five things that you're, um, that they don't look like they're working together for good. And then ask the Lord to convince you that these things are really true even when it doesn't look like it because when it doesn't look like it, where are we falling? We're, we're living by sight instead of by faith, right? We're to live by faith and not by sight. Go back to 2 Corinthians 4, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what? So we fix our eyes not on what's seen. I think that's going to be key with this verse. But on what's unseen. What's seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal. And so God is working for eternal good instead of temporary good. When Guys, when we're looking at that next phrase, for those who love God. For those who love God, who does that include and who doesn't it include? Like that's the, it's an interesting thing here when you talk about only <clears throat> believers are under this umbrella, Scott. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, look at Jerry's sheet right here. He's taught this a few times more than, than, than my sheet right here. That's ridiculous. So, again, I think you should maybe start this, the answer to this, this question here. Well, just keep going. I, they, I think the, the combination of the, this part here, for those who love God and for those who have been called according to his purpose, that's the exact same group, right? No, there isn't an unbeliever that truly loves God. Not truly. They may say they do. They may like some of God's favorable attributes, but they don't truly love him. And the same group is the one that has been called according to God's purpose. And um, you know, we, we'll have to get to that here in a second when we're kind of going through that. But that it's not a thing where you say, okay, well, I'm a believer... But maybe I don't love God perfectly, so maybe Romans 8.28 doesn't really apply to me. right? Don't, I don't think that's what we should think about that today and just say, oh man, my love for God is kind of, sometimes it's better than others. And so it's the promise 
works more often the more I love God and less often the less I love God. I don't think I think that would be a mistake here. It's not saying that we love God perfectly, but it's saying what he's using there is a terminology for every believer. This goes with being a believer. And the foundation of this is going to come in 29 and 30, and we're probably not going to get there a ton today, but it's good to think about the foundation here, is um, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified and those he justified he also glorified and so this is not a process that started once you became a believer we were asking miss elizabeth 18 years ago god gripped her heart and changed her dramatically from being dead in her transgressions and sins to being alive in christ and, and at, at that point is when this promise starts to be true for her. So the unbeliever, and I think you hear that sometimes, don't you? People just kind of say, well, it, this is all going to work out, right? It, it's not for the unbeliever when they say that. That's not true in this sense. This is working out in a way better in a different way. Than, than for the unbeliever, Josh? Yeah, I I think you nailed it. it the, the, for those who love God, is just functioning as a kind of a categorical marker that this promise is for believers. And Paul doesn't use that phrase a lot in the New Testament. And then he quickly clarifies um, those who love God are the same ones who have been called by him. And um, he's not saying if, you know, to, this, to the degree that we love God, he's working for our good. That's a, a wrong... Uh, interpretation of the verse. Can't you be thankful? Yeah. Like, I'm so thankful that that's not it. Right? That, oh, this is going to work 27% today because I'm 27% really loving God well. Yeah. Which would probably be 2.7%. Right? Really. Yeah. And so I'm really thankful that that's not the condition. Go ahead. I guess maybe coming back to this idea a little bit, I think for all of us, the challenge is. We know it conceptually for the believer that this is true. And then you said at the beginning, you're a hypocrite. I think we would all say to some degree we're hypocrites in actually believing this. It's easier to believe when life's going well and things are, you know, all good and fine. But what about when there's a major trial? I mean, what would you say with, with you know, someone struggling to really apply this when, when a trial comes up? How would you help them to, you know, to really believe this? Yeah. <clears throat> Wow, I know that I failed this week at that. Knowing the truth, knowing that this is true, but then kind of asking the Lord to convince my heart uh, that that's really the way I need to think. But I think it is a change, a complete rewiring of everything that we think. Because most of us, isn't it true, that most of our emotions are based on our circumstances. And to begin to, to trust and believe that our circumstances have nothing to do with this promise. Our circumstances are only bringing about the truth of this promise. And I think it's so much easier, Josh, in answer to your question there, to look back and to see how God used this to sanctify um, 
believers in my own life to look back and to see, oh yeah, this led to this, led to this, <coughs> led to this, which has given me a deeper love for the Lord or has helped me to trust this um, in a neat way. So I don't know the answer except to, to say, I need to camp on these promises and just ask the Lord to convince you of that. Josh, you're great. you have a... Um, I, what do you do when you're not believing this thing? I don't think I can add to your answer. Scott? I said give Jerry Edgar a call and uh, spend the day with Jerry, I think is what I would say, honestly. Uh, but let me just say so another big, because I know you're not going to call me if I keep pushing back on you, but so I'll just say another big picture thing. John Newton uh, said this, which people probably know this, but he said everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. I mean, that's just an incredible statement there from, from Newton. Can you say that again? That is really good. Everything is needful that he sends, even if it's suffering. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds, even if it's a good thing. Like for us, we were praying for a baby, and it's like God was withholding it for our good. And so one pastor just said, thus, if we think we require some good thing that God has withheld from us, in reality, we don't absolutely need it. It also means that if we feel our life has been ruined by some bad thing, in reality, it is playing some very important role in our lives. It is teaching us, molding us, enriching us, humbling us, and, and so on. And again, it's not talking about comfort and convenience. The, the good, I think, is Josh has defined it for us. God is, in every circumstance, he's, he's shaping us, polishing us, melting, smoothing, sculpting, framing us into the image of his son, and I thought Sinclair Ferguson was so good on this, he just said, Paul is not saying everything works for the good and make up your own good. And he said, my dear friends, we cannot be trusted with knowing what is best for us. Our experience is so limited. I mean, we, we don't even know, we don't even know ourselves well enough to even possibly pick what's, good, what's the best for us. The idea that I could know what is best for me and say to the Heavenly Father, I know best. No, no, God knows what is best for us. I mean, God has infinite wisdom. He knows exactly what we need. Another author just said, trials are medicines measured out with care and prescribed by our wise and gracious physician. He proportions the frequency and the weight of each dose exactly to what the case requires. I mean, that is just incredible. I mean, he knows exactly, in his infinite wisdom, exactly the kind of suffering. But then Thomas Watson, this is a book on contentment, but this is so good, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, if God sees that it is better for us to abound, we shall abound. And if he sees that it is better for us to be brought low, we shall be brought low. Be content to be at God's disposal. God sees in his infinite wisdom that the same condition is not convenient for all. That which is good for one may be bad for another. I mean, that should guard us from envy like, or even discontentment. If God may, you're single, wanting to get married, your friend gets engaged, going to get married, well, you should celebrate. God's causing them to abound in, in that point. And then maybe he's going to cause you to abound later and that person will be brought low. God, God is just so wise. And I think that, again, will help us uh, he knows way better than we, we do to help us, you know, trust trust this promise. Yeah, it'd help us not to compare. Not to compare, Because yes. that's very easy to, to do. Wow, what a good thing. So there goes envy, right? We already got rid of worry, fear, um, anxiety, and depression, and now envy is out the window, too. We're not, the sin's going to go down the, down the, uh, the pipe fast if we would really believe that, Josh. I think uh, Doriani asked this question when we're thinking about this this doctrine of God working all things together for good uh, for our conformity to Christ. But he, um, in answer to the question I asked you, I thought his response was also really good. When we think about during trials, how often is it true that we learn to trust ourselves less and trust our trust God more? I mean, it, trials I think oftentimes lead us to. Um, or, or when life is, is difficult, maybe the temptation to not believe this could, could be there when life is hard. But we, if we know God's working for conformity to Christ, that is ultimately what's best for us. And 
Um, how often do I know in my own life I try think that I've got everything under control? You know, there's so much pride, but trials really, I guess, bring my view of self down, bring a high view of God more in thinking through how this promise works. I guess. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> for sure, great. I don't know if I can continue with that, but I maybe I hate to bring us back, but I wanted to just kind of introduce. Um, we're talking about trials and afflictions being part of the things that are work for good, but I thought it would be helpful if we just sort of defined the all things um, to give us some categories of that. And I thought the way R.C. Sproul uh, listed it was, I'd never heard it before, it was very interesting, I thought it was memorable and maybe helpful. So he broke it down into, obviously all things is all things, but you could talk about it like this. Uh, it was pretty funny listening to him say it. He said it could be the good good, or the bad good, or the bad bad, or the good bad. <laughs> so it's like, okay, that's perfectly clear. Let's see what, let's see what that means. Um, and so he explains the good good would be total goodness, like that worked in heaven and by Christ for our benefit, with no hint or taint of evil. That's something that we won't experience this side of heaven uh, on our end, uh, but we experience it from God and from Christ. But the bad good would be a really broad category, uh, where good is done either by uh, Christians. Uh, uh, or non-Christians by Christians that's still tainted with our sin where we tried to do good with a good desire to please God but we're still um, our flesh is still active and so therefore it's not a good good category it would be a little bit uh, hindered by our sinfulness that would even come through in our good works uh, but it also would be the law-abiding citizen the law-abiding pagan who's a non-believer but they follow the law that would also be in the, that category of all things and then the bad bad would be simply pure and evil bad this would be the works of satan and the fallen angels no hint of good no hint of a good design and that that would be underneath the all things that are worked for good and then the broad category that i think we're going to talk about most today would be the good bad which is true badness um but that it's under god's sovereign power uh and is being used for our ultimate good that would be like the afflictions the trials the tribulations persecution all the things that we would experience sickness on a daily basis that are truly bad uh, but they're bad good. They're being worked towards good. So I thought that would be helpful to tr try to talk about um, maybe the categories yeah. of what the all things are. Think about this from Satan's perspective for a second. I don't know that we ought to do that very often, but this must drive him crazy, right? When That everything even that he does, you know, when you think about that, even God is never hindered by Satan's um, work. Right, that even God is using that, and that must be very frustrating, you know, for Satan to, to, to do what's truly evil and for God to continue to orchestrate it in the life of the believer for what's truly good. MacArthur, um, uh, man, had given, has written on this just so well and, and preached out like these guys were saying, but on this part where uh, these guys are talking about in all things God works for good. That he says the word works is where we get the word synergism, and that means absolutely nothing to me because I had no idea what synergism was until he defined it, and I love this. The working together of various elements to produce an effect greater to and often different from the sum of each element's acting separately. So when I read that, that still didn't mean anything because I can't understand what that means. Let me run it, run it by you again and give a, the example that he gives. Working together of various elements to produce 
an effect greater to and often different from the sum of each element acting separately. So what he's saying, I think, is that during the day we have all these individual things that are bad, bad, good, bad, bad, good, all the things that Sproul's saying there that I'm not sure I'm, I need to listen to the tape and listen to him talk about, right? And But God is in the orchestrating business where he takes those individual things and he works them together. He orchestrates them. He um, brings it all together and works them together for good. And uh, the, the example that I love that MacArthur gave is uh, he was talking about um, two poisons. If you mix uh, chloride, uh, chloride, chlorine or chloride, Grant, now we're in your area. Either one. And you eat them, to, if you eat it by itself, it'll kill you, right? And sodium, same way, if you eat it by itself, Caitlin, I'm not sure if Grant knows what he's talking about here. Is that? It'll explode. It will? It's water-reactive. In your stomach? Probably. Ooh, if it makes it that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't seem like a good idea. And so either one of those, you eat them apart, and, uh, and and you die. And but if you mix them together, they become salt, right? And we even need salt. There's something that's that's good. The combination of them is good. And then you die in three years from high blood pressure, but it's still you don't die instantly. So the the whole idea is God's doing this all the time. Right? The individual events, are they, they don't look good. They aren't good. But God works them together for good. Somebody gave a far less example. is like all the guys in the Beatles, if they sang by them themselves, they may or may not be. But you put them all together. And I was like, I don't know if I even like that example. So if I do think about that in, in my own life. I've got to give um, uh, an example that I used a ton of times, I think wrongly, we were driving um, Jim Workington and I from Columbia Bible College to Nebraska. He lived in Canada, so he would drive his. He's the same guy that I talked about a couple of weeks ago that cried, Lord, Lord, Lord. I guess that was last week. Well, Jim's back in the story. Now he's driving with me again. There's bad stuff when Jim rides with me. Bad, 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 good, maybe. I don't know how to categorize it. I'm driving through Atlanta this time. It's Friday night, probably 4.30, and uh, we're on Interstate 20, and somebody, uh, I'm following Jim this time. Last time he was following me, and he probably thought that's not very safe, so now I'm following him. So he's uh, in front of me. Somebody runs out of gas in the middle lane. There's three lanes back then. We're probably talking 1990 again, maybe, something like that. Three lanes on Interstate 20. Somebody ran out of gas. Jim pulled into another lane. I thought, I looked in my mirror. I don't think I can get that way. I knew they, that I was going to crash into the guy that had run into gas because I couldn't put my brake on that much. So I tried to get into the left lane, and I hit two people over in the left lane. Well, they were in their cars, but I hit two cars uh, in, their left, in the left lane. So there, all of a sudden now, there is the guy who's run out of gas, my wrecked van and these two wrecked cars in the middle of Friday night about 4.30 in Atlanta on Interstate 20. And so obviously, whew, I look back and I'm from Nebraska and I see more cars than I've ever seen at one time all back, miles back. And I think, oh man, I've created a mess. The lady, one of the ladies comes up and talks a little bit through my windshield. They get everything 
kind of cleaned up and people start going going back. Not everybody that's driving by uh, my vehicle once one lane starts to be open, not all of them are yelling synergy out the window with a smile. I know that for sure. Some of them are giving some funny, funny signals and some things because they're not super happy with me and they're maybe not believing this promise, but as unbelievers, they might not. Well, anyway, we get home uh, and she calls me, one of the ladies I hit, calls me Sunday afternoon before uh, lunch and says, my boyfriend wants me to sue you um, for running in me. I thought, well, I didn't know what to say. I hadn't been sued that often before, but I thought this probably what I deserve for running into her. Well, I didn't know what to, what exactly to do, and she kind of just left it as that. And then she called back, and I think it was two weeks later. So I'm still waiting for my van to get repaired. Uh, they, we, the, Jim just put me in his Camaro, and we just we got home the rest of the way, so my van's still in Atlanta, and now I'm back in Nebraska. She calls back two weeks later, and she says, today, my pastor, I had no idea that she was a churchgoer. She said, I was in church and our pastor talked about how one believer should never sue another believer. Well, we had never even had a conversation about um, that I was a believer, but I thought, what a great sermon. Perfect. <laughs> and so she says now, she doesn't really want to sue me anymore. And uh, that, you know, we're kind of back to, back to square one. So I think, well, that's fantastic. And then she calls back about three weeks later. I think this might have been after maybe my friend Goose and I flew back to Atlanta to get my van. While we're there, we come up to where uh, this thing had been fixed on the, uh, and there's like barbed wire. I don't remember the Dobermans, but there might have been. Like we're downtown Atlanta and this isn't looking like any place I've ever seen in Nebraska. That's for sure. And they have my van, and the guy won't even let me pay the deductible. He's got on a, a bumper sticker on his window that says, Jesus is Lord, is what it says on the front of his uh, shop. And so he fixes my van for really for nothing, for whatever the insurance gave him. And, um, and we drive off with it. The lady calls back again it's Sunday afternoon. And, and she calls back and says, hey, guess what, Jerry? Like, now we're on a first-name basis. And she's like, "My, uh, it turned out to be that insurance company bought a better car than the one I had, and I was able to get my daughter a Christmas present with the leftover money. She wasn't going to get anything for Christmas this year. Now she's, like, thanking me for running into her. And you think, what in the world? That's Romans 8, 28, right? But here's where I taught this wrong for so many years. Why did I think that was Romans 8, 28? Because it's kind of a feel-good story, right? It made my life more comfortable, her life more comfortable, started bad, looked good, okay? Let's rewind the tape. Let's say I kill somebody on that road, right? Let's say that um, she does sue me. Let's say I never get back to Columbia Bible College because I'm so far in debt, I can't pay anymore. Let's say everything goes completely south in our eyes. That is still Romans 8, 28 in effect. That story was one I liked and told because it turned out so good. But in our eyes, good. But the great news is it doesn't matter how it turns out. And it showed me, because I liked that story in Romans 8, 28, 
that I don't choose all the other stories that haven't turned out so well in my mind. But that's where I think I go wrong in what's really good. So good, and you guys have already explained this, good here is not our comfort. Like if I get home during the day and Amy says, hey, how was your day? I, I go by, right, like how did the eighth graders treat me? Did everything go well at school? Was it fun? Was it comfortable? Right, that's usually my answer, something like that. Well, it wasn't a very good day, right? And that's not the way to think about our day is that every day, and that's why I hear Grant saying from Sproul, every day is a good day in the light of Romans 8, 28. Every day. Because God's orchestrating it. He's bringing about just the right dose of trials and uh, the right dose of good times as we see it. And it's, and it's perfect. It's perfect. There isn't a challenge that's too much. Or one that's too little. They are absolutely what we need. And I think that's the that's the great news now. And all things, right? It is completely all-encompassing. There isn't anything that sneaks by God. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't look down? He wasn't looking down on that day in 1990 and was like, look at the mess Jerry made again. What am I going to do about this? No, no, no. There's always, he's in control of these things. He's sovereign, and I think there's two things that if you and I, Mark has talked a bunch about this, if we can do the, if we can believe these two things, the sovereignty of God in everyday life, that God is providential with every single event that's going on. He wasn't just sovereign in your election, right, that we're getting to really next week. He's sovereign with every single event. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. We have countless places in Scripture where we can see that in, in trials. The, the 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Blessed are you, Mark preached on this not too long ago, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil um, against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way he, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Right? There's all of these great promises concerning this. So we, we hold to that. And so if we will get foundationally, this verse helps us to, number one, hold on to that doctrine of God's sovereignty. And if you can have that as a foundation, then nothing will shake you like it would if you didn't have that. Is that, I hope that that. Secondly, the, the doctrine of trials, right? Or the, the theology on trials will be so much different. Again, if you apply this verse to that, everyone you can welcome. Everyone you can enjoy, right? It tells us to have pure joy in our trials. We say, how does that work? The reason that works is because this is true. God's using them to build perseverance and character and hope and to make us more like Christ. So good here is not the good that we see as good. And aren't you thankful for that? This is not good like we see it. It's not our short 
um, sided good. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. But that isn't why God gave us this life. Why did God give us this life for verse 29? To conform us to the image of Christ. To bring him glory. You will be able to bring God more glory because of every single event, every single trial, every single thing he's working together for good. Right? And that will bring God more glory through your life. And he's in control of that. I'm so thankful for these words right in there that God shows us that it's him. For those who love God and all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is the one orchestrating this. Our Father in Heaven is the one doing this. This isn't accidentally happening. It won't accidentally happen. God's the one that's synergizing that event. So, right synergy somewhere where you see it every day and then trust that he's synergizing it, if that's a word. I don't know if you can put that into a verb form or whatever that kind of form that is. But synergy is happening all day long. Grant, could you talk to us about the effectual call? This is what we've been waiting for. Sure, yeah, I can give it a shot. Um, so we're getting that from what are the called in the end of the verse. We talked a little bit about the beginning, those who love God, and we established that those who love God is not, it's not, uh, the love of God from us is not the condition about which we unlock this promise. It's just describing a category of person, the called at the end of the verse. Um, we know that we love God because he first loved us. It's not initiated by us or dictated by our love towards him on a daily basis. But what, is, what are the called of God? Um, we, we'll see this more clearly, I think, in next week with the golden chain. Um, but we, we will see in those verses that all those that are called are justified, not some. The calling is effectual. So we're talking about the effectual call, meaning all those who are called by God uh, are initiated to salvation. Um, the effectual call is understood as God's sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation. The effectual call to a sinner so overwhelms his natural inclination to rebel that he willingly places his faith in Jesus Christ. And we see this all over the New Testament, but some places that we can see it uh, pretty clearly are John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We also see it in Matthew 22, 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. That would be the general call of the gospel going out, but few are chosen, effectually called. We see it in 2 Timothy uh, 1, 9, uh, talking about God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Uh, that would be our predestination before the ages began. We also, I think, it culminates in Romans in 4, 17, um, chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So there we see the call is effectual in creation. Uh, and R.C. Sproul, I thought, said it really helpfully this way. God did not plead with the darkness to let it be, let there be light, and the darkness relented and let there, and there was light. Uh, when he calls something into being, it is always effectual. It always accomplishes its purpose. It cannot be uh, frustrated or thwarted. Uh, Paul uses this in other places. Uh, when he is introducing himself, he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle 
of Christ Jesus. And we know from Paul's conversion, it wasn't like God uh, asked him to become an apostle and he relented and chose to be an apostle. Christ Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and he was radically changed from the initiation that God had in his life. It was completely effectual. The purpose of God's call can never be frustrated. Uh, and that's what's true for Romans 8.28. It's true for those only, the elect of God. They are the called and they're the ones who love God. This isn't describing most people. As Sproul says, most people live their lives at enmity with God. We love God because he first loved us. So that would be the effectual call. I love it. And in the Gospels, like Graham said, Jesus says many are called, few are chosen. That's a general call. That's different. But what's so interesting to me, and I think that as far as I can know, I read reliable guys that say, anytime in the epistles that the word called is used, okay, anytime Paul uses it, he always uses it in the same way. It's the effectual call. It will be accomplished. Whoever God calls will be justified, like we'll see next week. Josh, any final thoughts on this? One final thought. The I think this text, or maybe moving off the effectual call and just thinking about the verse as a whole, I think you've heard of this idea of the God of the deist who created the world and then just steps back, oh, yeah. lets the world just kind of operate um, as it is. Is not the God we see in this text. It's far beyond that. The same God that caused all things to exist, who brings the stars out by night, governs the planetary bodies and all their motions and their movements, is concerned about us, our life, our good. And as John Stott said, he's actively, ceaselessly, and energetically working to make us like Christ. Yeah. I really like that quote. That is a great quote. Weren't you a deist for a while, Caleb? Not really. I think it's a pretty rapid onset yeah. from, like, I don't believe in God at all to... Agnostic to... The biggest to, jump was to believe, to believe in God. It. But then once that was established, it was a pretty quick... Yeah, journey. love it, yeah. But man, deism is really out to lunch, isn't it? Yeah, Scott? Yeah, I mean, I would just say again, I would say about you, like, I'm profoundly thankful for this guy who's taught on this. Like, I, even before North Ave started, I heard you preach on Romans 8.28 at Faith Prez years ago, and I mean, you've really had a profound impact on me in terms of helping me to believe this, to know it's true. Even Mark talking to me about what you've said so just so thankful for, for you on this topic. But one quick thing I would say, studying church history and studying people who've suffered well has really helped help me. And certainly one, a guy in a wheelchair who's, who believes this through and through. But I'll just mention one, one example. Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma, he suffered incredible amounts in his life. I mean, I gave my dad, we gave him a, a thick biography, and my dad was just like, it doesn't, like, he just, it just keeps getting bad. It's like one bad thing after another. It's almost depressing to read his life. I even was telling Liliana at one point, I was reading about when they lose a child, she said, stop reading. It's so hard to, to hear. But here, here's what they lost, some of their property and some of the missionaries had died. Here, here's what he says. He says, why has this grievous interruption been permitted and all this precious time lost? And why are our houses and property allowed to be burned up? And why are those most dear to us and most qualified to be useful to the cause torn from our arms and dashed into the grave? And then he answers his own questions. Because infinite wisdom and love will have it so, because it is best for us and it should be so. And blessed be God, we know it and are thankful and rejoice and say... Glory be to God. And then he said, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. I and mean, that's what got Judson through. He was living inside of the promise, this Mount Everest promise. And, yeah, we again, we want to hold to it, cling to it, and live inside of this yep. promise. Yeah, synergy going on this week. Scott, would you pray for us? Sure. Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful for this time, and we're thankful for Romans 8 again. What an incredible chapter it has been to just slowly walk through it, and uh, what a great promise this is, this Mount Everest of promises, Romans 8, 28. Help us 
Father, to, to live in light of it, to believe it, to treasure it, to hold on to it, to, to marinate on it. Uh, it is true, as Jerry has said, it is true, so help us to believe it. I, I'm thankful for Jerry Ediger and his life, and I'm thankful that this verse became his best friend, that he has clung to it uh, through all the suffering he's endured, and he's been a model for us all to trust you in your sovereignty and in your goodness uh, in our lives. And thank you for people in church history like Adoniram Judson who have just believed in this promise and have been sustained by this promise. Help us, Father, to really trust in this promise, to cling uh, to this promise. We will, be, we will be helped from so many sins if we just believe this promise in Romans 8.28. Father, we pray you'd be at work through the service, through the singing, uh, through Jerry as he prays, through Mark as he teaches, from the Gospel of Matthew. Help us to be changed by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good. Please come back 167 hours and 10 minutes from right now. We will get in on even maybe better the golden chain. Lord willing. Thank you.